0: Welcome to another edition of an hour of your life. Is
1: it another edition or is it the same edition?
0: It's another edition of the same topic. Ah. Hi, I'm
1: Kim. And my name is Steve.
0: Uh, And just a couple of real quick things up top before we start the show. Um, I did want to offer our condolences to the Volts family, Uh, locally there is a very, very well-known place here in Dayton called Voltsy's Root Beer Stand, um, and the proprietor of that particular establishment, Rick Bolts, passed away this past week. Uh, So we would like to send our condolences to the Bolts family and to all of the patrons of Voltsy's Root Beer Stand. So, uh, Also, kind of on the flip side of that local coin, our friends at Cricket Bows have a new single out, so congratulations to them. They got another write-up in a magazine that I can't remember the name of at the moment. So, <laughs> anyway, you got anything you want to talk about? Nope. <laughs> well, that's, that's not very exciting.
1: <laughs> no, I mean, it's just... Uh, it snowed. Another, the snowed. The, the groundhog. I mean, what can we say? <sighs> he saw his shadow.
0: That's a lie, first of all. We watched it this morning, and there is no way it was snowing like crazy. There was no sun in sight. I call shenanigans. That groundhog could not possibly have seen his shadow.
1: Maybe it was the camera lights or something. Yeah, uh, I he's, don't know. He's lying. I don't know, but okay. So that was Patuxney, Puck puck Punxatany Phil. But what about Buckeye Chuck?
0: I don't know. Do you know?
1: I do not know what Buckeye I, Chuck. Did. I
0: didn't. I didn't look it up. Yeah. No. I don't know, whatever. What do they know anyway? They're groundhogs. Anyway,
1: this week, we are going to go ahead and continue with part two. We kind of thought that uh, the Lindbergh kidnapping was going to take a while. And I'll just Mm -hmm. say right now, as we have been researching Lindbergh, we're uncovering a lot of stuff about Lindbergh himself. And I'll just say, the show is not about Lindbergh, but it is about the kidnapping of the baby, and you'll see how this is going to tie in mm-hmm. with the FBI and how they have changed or how they changed their their investigative procedures to truly become a federal Bureau of Investigation across state lines and things like I, that
0: i I honestly, I think the history of the FBI is just a really interesting story. We watch what is that show on Netflix? Uh, I forget what it's called. Mind Hunter. Which one? I know, right? We have watched every show on Netflix. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Several times. Um, Mind Netflix Hunter. Netflix has
1: run out of shows. It really
0: has. Mind Hunter is the name of the yes. show. Um, that is a really good, it's got a, the guy who plays King George in Hamilton. Um, anyway. Well, as, as or long as King, whoever it is. As
1: long as we're talking about the FBI, the FBI lost two agents today oh, in yeah. Southern Florida that were killed An attempt to serve a warrant on, it sounds like a child pornography ring or something like that. So
0: So, yes, thank you. Um, If you are an FBI agent or a police officer or a firefighter or any one of our first responders, thank you for listening and thank you for doing the hard things. Um, We have family right now that's in Washington, D.C., protecting our nation's capital from potential upheaval. So uh, just thanks for everybody that does all that. All right. Anyway, let's recap. Well, yeah, let's
1: let's recap because it, it there was a lot of stuff in that. Yes, like, what twelve ransom letters?
0: Uh, thirteen, I think.
1: Thirteen, yeah. Yeah.
0: So there were a lot of ransom letters. The baby was, and we re- remember we called them called the baby the baby because the baby was also Charles Lindbergh. Junior. Uh, Charles Augustus Lindbergh, the second, probably honestly, Junior. Junior. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> anyway. Um, the baby was taken from his home. Um, th- nobody knew who did it. There were, excuse me, there were uh thirteen ransom notes. I think we said, um, and
1: and just by chance, the Lindberghs were there that weekend because right. the baby had been sick.
0: Yeah, had so a cold they, or something. So they they like were that. not necessarily expected to be at this particular yeah, home so. of theirs. So there was a lot of. Uh, you know, the, the, a lot of ransom notes from some kind of broken English in there and back and forth haggling about the ransom demands and m- meet me and find something under this rock or that rock. And uh, if you recall, the baby was found months after uh the kidnapping. Yeah, only
1: a few months later.
0: Uh, and was... Very
1: close to the home. Very
0: close to the home, was found, uh, unfortunately, deceased uh and... Uh, had not been alive for quite some time. As in, like, he died within a day or two of the kidnapping. And
1: I think they're pretty sure he died the day of the kidnapping, that yeah. he was killed yeah. during the kidnapping.
0: So yeah. uh, so there was just a whole lot of back and forth. But um, back in 1932, if you remember, we kind of left off. We mentioned this earlier in the show, and then we kind of circled back around to it. There was a guy. Okay, and-
1: you're not supposed to say, if you remember. Why? Because
0: that's that because is not a reason.
1: Yes, because of I was watching the show on like Alzheimer's and how to talk to Alzheimer's patients. You're not supposed to say, "Now you remember," because obviously they don't.
0: No, I said, "If you remember." Okay. If you remember, you can tune this part out. If you don't remember, then you can listen. Anyway, uh, in 1932. This guy named Gaston B. Means uh, styled himself as kind of a private detective, was approached by Mrs. Evelyn Walsh McLean, owner of the Hope Diamond and wealthy, wealthy, wealthy lady, Uh, and she wanted to help Colonel Lindbergh in getting back the baby, so she financed a search of, I believe it was $100,000 is what she she put up for the ransom and for uh, Gaston Means. Um, like, services, essentially. He said he was sure he could con- uh, secure a contact with the kidnappers. Um, he claimed that his friend was responsible for the Lindbergh kidnapping. Uh, and essentially, he he just kept stringing Mrs. Means along. Um, and mm. she gave him $100,000 and never produced the baby. So that's where we kind of left off.
1: Yeah. And the FBI was involved
0: Mm -hmm.
1: pretty much from the beginning of the investigation. The uh, president of the United States directed the FBI to get involved because this involved crossing over state lines. So local jurisdictions, things were a lot different back then. So they had a hard time talking from New York to New Jersey and sharing information and with the way the money was paid out in gold certificates mm-hmm. and the FBI was able you're to to and, mark this yep. traces, they had the resources to spread out over many different states and right. a lot, S- lot of stuff going on with this case.
0: So if you're binging, we apologize for that detour. If you're not binging, thank you for listening. Uh, and now you're all caught up to speed. If you didn't listen to the first episode, probably you really need to go back and listen to the first episode because this is a continuation. You can't really just jump in in the middle and have it make sense. Yeah. So. And before we move on, yeah,
1: New Jersey, the East Coast just got walloped by a massive snowstorm. I think we just heard on the news they got as much snow last night as they did the entire last year, and there a lot of a lot of folks are digging out. A lot of things happening up in that. The eastern part of the United States right now.
0: Yep. So yeah. stay safe, stay warm, have fun.
1: All right. I wonder how our friends in Maine are doing this. I wonder if they got, I, we need to call on.
0: Yeah, we probably should
1: communicate with them. And Shout see how out, out doing. to the
0: TSP folks. Hopefully you guys are breaking out your snowmobiles and building forts and
1: ice fishing and all kinds of fun doing stuff. Doing all that stuff you guys do up there in Maine.
0: <laughs> all right. So, all
1: right. So let's get on with this. So I'm going to pick up. I think the last thing that Kim said until April 17th, 1932, he kept Mrs. McLean waiting, daily expecting the return of the child.
0: He being Gaston means the right. con man. Yep. Okay. okay.
1: So during this period, he um, was purported to be effecting negotiations with the alleged leader of the kidnappers, whom he called the Fox. Ms. McLean finally requested the return of the $100,000 and additional money which she had advanced him for his expenses. When Mm -hmm. he failed to do so, the case was turned over to the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Means and the Fox, who was found to be Norman T. Whitaker, a disbarred Washington attorney... (laughs)
0: Ooh, there's a plot twist for you. Yeah.
1: ...were apprehended and Means was later convicted of embezzlement and larceny after trust and sentenced who 15 years in a federal penitentiary. Now remember, not as we said last it. week, a lot of people, there were a lot of scammers trying mm. to uh, cash in and make a make a buck off this uh, yeah. kidnapping and murder. And
0: when you get caught and you serve 15 years in the federal pen, it is not worth that's, it.
1: That's the big house.
0: Yeah, and this is back in, during the 30s when it was real bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, not like prison's great now, but there was no such thing as prison reform back in the 30s. <laughs>
1: So Whittaker and Means were later convicted of uh, conspiracy to defraud and were sentenced to serve two years each in a federal penitentiary. There were other attempted frauds which required extensive investigations before they could be completely eliminated from consideration. Connecting them with the Lindbergh case, like I said, there was a lot of people trying to cash in on this.
0: Yeah, and we, uh, you know, we mentioned last week that there. They chased down all of them, like they all the leads that came in, they followed them to their end. So they spent a lot of time and resources following frauds. Isn't
1: it amazing how things like this just bring out the best in people? Oh, yeah, giving out fake COVID you know what, vaccinations, it, it did,
0: and- but it did though. I, there were a lot of fraudsters, but there were people like Mrs. McLean too, who just were like, Here's money, I want to help.
1: That's true.
0: So don't always look on the negative side, <laughs>
1: okay. Like the people who are trying to give uh, vaccinations for 20 bucks on the corner.
0: Yes, but I also just saw a thing on the news of there was a book club full of like nurses and and physicians and stuff that somehow managed to vaccine. They got the vaccinations for 3,200 people in their town. Like they rallied together and wrote to whoever it was and did whatever they needed to do. So don't, it's not all bad.
1: It's not all good either. (sighs) So in all, there were literally thousands of leads in all sections of the United States, which were followed up um, to their to their final conclusion by the FBI. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, like you just said, Kim, the FBI traced all these thousands and thousands of leads down. The results of all these investigations, no matter how trivial, were reported. The activities of the known and suspected members of the so-called Purple Gang of Detroit. I wonder if they had anything to do with Jimmy Hoffa.
0: I don't know, that but they did have show. they did have something to do with that Elvis Presley song,
1: the Purple Gang.
0: Yeah, remember the whole rhythm section was a Purple Gang. Okay. In Jailhouse Rock.
1: Okay, so the the Purple Gang of Detroit and various rumors and allegations concerning this gang were carefully and thoroughly investigated. Numerous registries of boats were examined in a fruitless ende- endeavor to locate the boat called Nellie, on which the baby, um was supposed to have been found according to the 13th and last ransom note handed to Dr. Condon at the time he paid the ransom money to John. Records of cemetery employees who were employed in various cemeteries in certain sections of New York City and near Hopewell, New Jersey, were examined. Information accumulated in various other kidnapping and extortion cases handled by the FBI were examined in the closest detail and studied with particular Reference to any bearing they may have had upon the solution of the Lindbergh case. So as we mentioned last week, a lot of our notes this week come from FBI.gov, so you can tell by this who like yeah. is responsible for this section of notes. Okay. Hundreds of photographs and descriptive data of known criminals of all types and other possible suspects were exhibited to the few eyewitnesses in this case in an endeavor to identify the mysterious John. Now, like we said... John had been seen by a couple people. Mm-hmm. It was Condon said that he could identify him if he saw him again. Yeah,
0: Condon met him in person yeah. twice.
1: And I, he, he said he could identify him. Yeah. On May 2nd, 1933, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York discovered 296 $10 gold certificates and one $20 gold certificate, all from the Lindbergh ransom notes. And we say notes, we're talking about That's a lot. Notes. Yeah, that's a lot of money right there. So these bills were included among the currency received at the Federal Reserve Bank on May 1st, 1933, and apparently had been made in one deposit. So again, the FBI is like checking with the banks like daily to see if anybody is passing, and they're spreading the word that if these notes, these bank notes, these bills are passed at a store, contact the FBI.
0: And uh, quote-unquote John, I don't think he was very smart in this. He is trying to deposit 296 gold certificates in one spot. So $2,600, or almost $3,000 in one spot, as opposed to... That's going to draw attention. Right, as opposed to, like, you know... 20 bucks here, 30 bucks there, yeah. go remember, to all different banks. Remember,
1: the Great Depression is going on.
0: Yeah, so that's really going to spark some interest. Who has that much money to just walk in yeah, and give even, to the bank?
1: Even without computers and how they trace and do things now. I mean, right. you, you're not you're only allowed to withdraw so much cash out of your own bank account right now, and and it sparks, or the bank is supposed to report that to the Treasury Department or
0: Right, People. and the fact that he had this much money in cash—that's unusual too. I feel like even now, like if you were to just take ten thousand or um, almost three thousand dollars in ten-dollar bills to a bank, that you would raise some eyebrows.
1: Oh, Kim, I've got about ten million dollars in uh, ten-dollar bills stored in our safe in there. Yeah,
0: of course you do. <laughs> um, but you're not going to take it all to the bank. No, I'm going <laughs> to keep it there.
1: Yeah, ten million dollars in ten-dollar bills. Ooh. I think we need a couple more safes to do that with. I don't know. Okay.
0: Mm, You probably would,
1: yeah. Uh, Immediately upon the discovery of these bills, deposit tickets at the Federal Reserve Bank for May first, 1933, were examined. One was found bearing the name and address of J.J. Faulkner, 537 West 149th Street, and had marked thereon gold certificates $10 and $20 in the amount of $2,000. $980. $980. Despite extensive investigation, this depositor was never located. So Ooh. he was he was trying to cover it up, obviously. Yeah. I mean, it was, I'm not a detective, and I can figure that one out. <laughs> Examination of the ransom notes by handwriting experts resulted in virtually all unanimous opinion that all the notes were written by the same person, and that writer was of German nationality but had spent some time in America. So they could tell the fbi had the experts they could tell by their language experts right and determine all this and stuff. one
0: of the things um, if you remember when we looked at the first ransom note it said something about gut like g-u-t instead yeah. of good so yeah. i'm sure that those i mean i mean all the notes minor the, yeah. yeah
1: enough that the experts right. were able to determine this yeah dr condon described john as scandinavian and believing he could identify the man spent considerable time in viewing the numerous photographs of possible suspects and known criminals. In this connection, the FBI retained the services of an artist to prepare the portrait of John from descriptions furnished by Dr. Condon and Joseph Peron. Peron, if you remember, was the taxi cab driver who delivered one of the ransom notes from John to Dr. Condon. And, uh... Furthermore, to identify the individual who received the ransom payment, representatives of the New York City Bureau office engaged Dr. Condon to prepare a transcript of all conversations had by him with John on March 12th and April 2nd, 1932, the dates on which Dr. Condon Condon personally contracted the kidnapper in order to negotiate the return of the child and the payment of the ransom.
0: Ooh, that's a lot of pressure. Can you imagine? Oh, yeah. Like to try to, because then, I mean, they want your entire conversation and it's been a while now. I mean, we're looking at, uh, this is like a year later almost. Um, and actually it is a year later cause it's in May, 1933. So it's trying to remember those conversations from a year ago and thinking that if you forget even one detail of those conversations, it could be the, the case making detail So I can't imagine. Maybe so. Um, In 1934, in March, those conversations were transcribed in detail on phonograph records by Dr. Condon, who imitated the pronunciations in the dialect of John. And so in this manner, the nationality, education, mentality, and character of the kidnapper were more clearly identified and permanently preserved for future use. Another interesting attempt to identify the kidnapper...
1: I wonder if those records are available like on youtube or
0: i don't know i bet they're in like the that. library of congress probably so i bet you could find them oh should try check that out um another attempt centered around the ladder used in the crime um remember back that uh there are was we nerds yes <laughs> okay. so back they had that, that I ladder now go through and i, I know to find it's it. totally fine uh, remember that the kidnapper had used a ladder, but it had broken, and uh, they actually were analyzing the the nails and the placement of the nails, and they said that the kidnapper was had some carpentry experience because of how this ladder that he had used to get into the upstairs window was made. Police really or quick, quickly realized that it was crudely built, but built nonetheless by somebody familiar with wood who was mechanically inclined. It had been thoroughly examined for fingerprints and had been exhibited to builders, carpenters, and neighbor- neighbors of the Lindberghs in vain. Man, I can't talk so, today. Yeah, they
1: are doing a lot of work trying to trace us down. Yeah. A lot of legwork.
0: Slivers of the ladder had even been analyzed, and the types of wood used in the ladder had been identified. Perhaps a complete examination of the ladder by itself by a wood expert would yield additional clues, And in early 1933, such an expert was called in, Arthur Kaler of the Forest Service, the United States Department of Agriculture.
1: I could have used him when I was building your table because I didn't know what the legs were until I actually started slicing off. And that's when I discovered, I thought they were oak, and that's when I discovered they were hickory.
0: I'd rather have hickory anyway. It's more interesting than oak. Oak is everywhere, hickory is not. Kohler uh, disassembled the ladder and painstakingly identified the types of wood used and examined the tool marks. He also looked at the pattern made by the nail holes because it appeared likely that some wood had been used before in indoor construction. He made field trips to the Lindbergh estate and to factories to trace some of the wood. He summarized his findings in a report and later played a critical role in the trial of the kidnapper. Now for a period of seven months prior to August 20th, 1934, no gold certificates were discovered except for those received by the Federal Reserve Bank, which we previously mentioned. Now, starting on August 20th, 1934 and extending into September, a total of 16 gold certificates were discovered, most of them in the vicinity of Yorkville and Harlem. This long-awaited opportunity uh, was they were excited that it had finally arrived, and as each bill was recovered, a colored pin marking the location of the recovered bill was inserted in a large map of the metropolitan area, thus indicating the movements of the individual or individuals who might be passing the ransom money. And I Good just old-fashioned detective. I'm work telling you, on I, here. I can just picture this like the old like old-timey guys in their, their suspenders, and yeah. and yeah, the big map on the wall. Yeah. When the first few ransom money notes made their first appearance, it was decided to concentrate on gold certificates as experience had proven the futility of tracing the ordinary currency included in the ransom money. In keeping with the cooperative policy previously established with the New Jersey State Police and the New York City Police Department, Um, The various neighborhood banks discovered that the bills close to the point at which they were passed, and then it became possible for the investigators to trace the bills to the person who had originally passed them. And for the first time in the history of the case, the investigators succeeded in finding out that the description of the individual passing these bills fit exactly that of John as described by Dr. Condon.
1: Oh, boy. That's exciting.
0: That is exciting. You know, they have their guy now or okay. they at least know like what so, he looks like. So, like this is definitely kidnapper. So, let us
1: think back really quick. A lot of the shows before we do it, we do a lot of research and then we'll look for documentaries to a, several different sources to try to watch a documentary just to, yeah. Look, Look, how we do well our show, yeah, yeah. So, we, how we do our show is we do a lot of research from different sources. And we try to collect that information, and then we try to sort out. Sometimes we, we we try to verify different sources, and then we just compile different sources. Yeah,
0: because sometimes we'll get stuff that only one source has, and no other source says that, and so we think eh, it's probably and then not we look, accurate. And then
1: we look, yeah, and then we look at who wrote it or whatever. So, right. What what I what I was getting at with this, you think of all the scrolling we've done through. Netflix and Prime (laughs) and all the other places we look at, Mm -hmm. YouTube and places like that, to try to find documentaries and videos. I don't know if I've ever seen anything yet on Lindbergh, this this case.
0: There's not a lot.
1: Yeah, there's not a lot. Okay. So anyway, it was determined through the investigation that the bills were being passed principally at a corner produce stores or at corner produce stores. About 1.20 p.m. on September 18, 1934, the assistant manager of the Corn Exchange Bank and Trust Company at 125th Street and Park Avenue, New York City, telephoned the New York City Bureau of Office to advise them that a $10, $10 gold certificate had been discovered a few minutes previously by one of the tellers in the bank. Again, so the FBI... they so
0: close!
1: Yeah, they again, they had put out so much information... To the, the merchants and to the banks, that, hey, if this stuff gets passed, and the people were doing it. They were following, doing what they were asked to do to help trace this down.
0: Yeah, it's got to be so frustrating, though, because they just got this like a few minutes ago, and they didn't even realize, you know, I mean, in the, in the regular flow of tr- business transactions and stuff, you don't necessarily have time to stop and check all of the... Serial numbers on all of the things that you're getting. So I imagine they probably, you know, a couple times a day when they had a lull in business or whatever, they would go through and check. So the John is so close, like they keep, he keeps kind of slipping through their fingers. He's there, and then just a little after he's gone, then they figure out that he was there, but it's too late.
1: So it was soon determined that this bill had been received at the bank from a gasoline station located at 127th Street and Lexington Avenue in New York City. On September 15th, you know, how did they... Uh, I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I know, I'm it's amazing. On it is September, really amazing. On September 15th, 1934, an alert attendant had received a bill and payment for five gallons of gasoline from a man whose description fitted closely that of the individual who had passed other bills in recent weeks. I'm betting it's John, mm-hmm. uh, the filling station attendant, using or being suspicious of the ten dollars gold certificate. See, gold certificates by now were winding down. I mean, they were still out there, but yeah, if you if you got a gold certificate, it was enough to draw to your draw your attention that you got a gold certificate. Yeah. So, so this filling station attendant was suspicious because he got this ten dollars gold certificate, and. He, he had the forethought to record on the bill the license number, of the automobile bill that the purchaser had used to fill up his car. With. Can we
0: just give this filling station attendant a round of applause? Because yeah. this filling station attendant ends up being the hero of the story. His name appears to have been lost to history, but much like Peanut George, who will maybe talk about <laughs> one day in a future Abraham Lincoln episode, I this, feel sorry for Peanut George. John <laughs> this, <laughs> Wilkes Booth
1: knocked that little boy over trying to escape. So, but that's another story.
0: Yeah, Peanut George was the, the kid who held John Wilkes Booth's horse for him as he was assassinating Lincoln. Uh, Unknown and, to him. Right, and, yeah. and the poor little kid got kicked in the face during yeah, the escape. Yeah,
1: John Wilkes Booth came out and kicked poor little <laughs> Peanut George and knocked him over, and poor little Peanut George was like, what the heck? <laughs> I'm just holding your horse.
0: I, How about yeah, a I would, dollar here, buddy? right. So this is another Peanut George type of thing, except this guy, he really should have his name, you know, should be in all the history books because he ends up breaking the case. But we don't know this unnamed filling station attendant, but thank you, unnamed filling station attendant. So
1: so this license number was traced back and it was issued to Bruno Richard Hopman of 1279 East 222nd Street, Bronx, New York. You know what? I'm going to go do a Google map on that here in a little bit.
0: Oh, yeah. I'll post the picture.
1: Yeah. Hopman's house was closely surveilled by uh, the federal and local authorities throughout the night of September 18, 1934, until at approximately 9 o'clock a.m., 0900 for you Army folks, on September 19, 1934. An individual closely fitting the description of John is supplied by Dr. Condon, in the description of the purchaser of the gasoline as supplied by the service station attendant, left his house and entered his automobile parked nearby on the street. He was promptly taken into custody by representatives of the three investigative agencies. After some investigating, he was found to be Bruno Richard Hopman, the individual to whom the automobile License had been issued a German carpenter
0: oh. who had
1: been in this country for approximately 11 years. There so, you go. all the circumstantial evidence is starting to pile up right here.
0: But what else did they find?
1: A $20 gold ransom certificate was also found on his person.
0: Whoa. All I can think about that's is Shrek. pretty damning right all, there. All I can
1: think of Shrek, when, you know, the cat. It's not mine. That
0: <laughs> he he's not mine. <laughs> it is not mine. Okay. <laughs> uh,
1: his description fit perfectly. That of John is described by Dr. Cotton. And in his house was found a pair of shoes, which had been purchased with a $20 ransom bill, recovered on, septem- on September 8, 1934, Hopman admitted several other purchases which had been made with ransom certificates. On the mm-hmm. night of September 19, 1934, he was positively identified by Joseph Peron as the individual from whom he had received the fifth ransom note to be li- delivered to Dr. Condon. How is he going to explain? I got all these notes. Uh,
0: right. But it's not mine. Yeah. The following day, ransom certificates in excess of $13,000 were found secreted in the garage of (laughs) Hauptman's residence. Shortly thereafter, he was identified by Dr. Condon as John, to whom the ransom ransom had been paid. It was also ascertained that he was in possession of a Dodge sedan automobile, which answered the description of that scene in the vicinity of the Lindbergh home the day prior to the kidnapping. And shortly after his apprehension, specimens of Houtman's handwriting were flown to Washington, D.C., where a study was made of them in the FBI laboratory. Shockingly, a comparison of the writing appearing on the ransom notes with that of the specimens disclosed remarkable similarities in inconspicuous personal characteristics and writing habits, which resulted in a positive identification by the handwriting experts of the laboratory.
1: You don't mess around with the FBI. I'm
0: telling you. Now, upon Hauptmann's apprehension, it was found that he bore a striking resemblance to the portrait of John, which had been previously prepared from descriptions furnished by Dr. Condon remember and Joseph Perone. provided yep. the, the artist. He had a criminal record for robbery, and he'd spent time in prison. And then early in July 1923, he had stowed away aboard the SS Hanover at Bremen, Germany, and arrived in the port of New York City on July 13, 1923. He was arrested and deported immediately... And another, after another failed attempt at entry in August, Hauptman successfully entered the United States in November 1923 on board, ironically, the George Washington. Hmm. On October 10th, 1925, Hauptman married Anna Schuffler, a New York City waitress, and they had a son. Manfred was born to them in 1933, uh-huh. which is a little Gross. If you think about it. Like, it makes me feel some kind of way. Yeah. That he had a son not too long after he, he killed the Lindbergh baby. After he killed
1: the Lindbergh baby, it yeah. It just
0: is, ugh. During his illegal stay in New York City and until the spring of 1932, Hauptmann followed his occupation of Carpenter. However, a short while after March 1st, 1932, the date of the kidnapping, Hauptmann began to trade rather extensively in stocks and never worked again.
1: Ooh, I wonder if he was trading in, uh, GameStop. GameStop.
0: <laughs> Hauptman was indicted in the Supreme Court in Bronx County, New York, on charges of extortion on September 26, 1934, and on October 8, 1934, in Hunterdon County, New Jersey, he was indicted for murder. Two days later, the governor of the state of New York honored the requisition of the governor of the state of New Jersey... For the surrender of Bruner Richard Hauptman, and on October 19, 1934, he was removed to the Hunterdon County Jail, Flemington, New Jersey, to await trial. That trial started on January 3, 1935, and lasted for five weeks.
1: The case against him was based on circumstantial evidence, but that's some pretty daggone that's good That's lots and lots, lots of circumstantial, circumstantial evidence, evidence, Yeah. Tool marks on the ladder match tools owned by Hopman. Remember the the FBI Mm -hmm. brought in that specialist to determine
0: From the forest department.
1: Yes. Wood in the ladder was found to match wood used as flooring in his attic. Uh How did that get there?
0: Yeah, right. And they also said that it was interior wood. The forest guy said that the ladder was made of interior wood. So there you go.
1: Yeah. It was people broke into my house and made this letter and stashed all that ransom money in my <laughs> in my garage. But
0: not only did they stash the ransom money, what else did they find in his house?
1: Uh, they found Dr. Condon's telephone number and address Ooh. scrawled on the door frame inside a closet of huh, his house. Yeah. Isn't
0: that convenient? Yeah.
1: It's all circumstantial. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Handwriting on the ransom notes matched samples of Hopman's, Hopman's writing, his handwriting, on February 13th, 1935, the jury returned a verdict. Hopman was found guilty in murder in the first degree. The sentence, death, the defense appealed. Obviously. Yes. The Supreme Court of the state of New Jersey on October 9th, 1935, upheld the verdict of the lower court. Good. Hopman's appeal to the Supreme Court of the United States was denied on December 9th, 1935, and he was to be electrocuted on January 17th, 1936.
0: Whoa, that was speedy.
1: However, on this same day, the governor of the state of New Jersey granted a 30-day reprieve. Oh,
0: well.
1: February 17th, 1936, Hopman was resentenced to be electrocuted during the, uh, the week of March 30th, 1936. On March 30th, 1936, the pardon court of the state of New Jersey denied Hopman's petition for clemency and on April 3rd, 1936, at 8.47 p.m., Bruno Richard Hopman was electrocuted.
0: So can we just take a minute and talk about how fast this happened?
1: Well, you, you think about the, the Oklahoma City bomber. He, he went quickly, too.
0: Yeah, I guess. I just think, like, Yeah, now, I mean, we hear about people
1: on death row for, like, years. 20 years. Yeah,
0: this is, um, he was sentenced.
1: What was his name? Oklahoma City guy?
0: Timothy McVeigh.
1: Timothy McVeigh. He went fairly quickly, Yeah, it was, I
0: think within like 30 or 60 days or something like that. But No, yeah. he wasn't
1: executed then that quickly. But oh,
0: but I yeah. mean, yeah, Bruno Hauptman, um, you know, his last uh, reprieve basically ran out on December 9th and he was electrocuted on April 3rd. So, less than six months. Less well, than five months, actually.
1: I guess lawyers today aren't
0: I mean, the lawyers of then aren't what lawyers today are. Yeah, there's a lot of, yeah. Well, as with anything, there is controversy. Of course, you you can't have a show on an hour of your life without some controversy. Prior to that reprieve, Governor Harold G. Hoffman...
1: Hoffman. What? I'm just saying. Okay. Hoffman.
0: Of New Jersey, visited Hauptman in the death house. Hoffman said in a statement... I share with hundreds of thousands of people our doubt as to the value of the evidence that placed him in the Lindbergh nursery. I do doubt that this crime could have been committed by one man. Mm, so that's probably why the governor gave him a reprieve because he didn't think he was guilty.
1: You don't think it was because maybe the the uh, governor had German roots? Maybe. Okay. That's, I mean, that could have something. That's what I was suspecting. Yeah, okay. that
0: could have something to do with it. But okay.
1: That, that's pure speculation sure. on my part.
0: I didn't read that in any
1: research or anything.
0: It could be, um, or it could, uh, who knows? Houtman's 93-year-old widow, Anna, one of the last surviving principals in the case, kept trying to clear his name until she died. Um, At a news conference in Flemington, New Jersey, where the trial took place, she said, my husband was never, never near the Lindbergh home. They killed an innocent man. Um,
1: I mean, I'd hope you would... Like, stick up for me. Not that I would do something like that. No, but
0: but her lawyer, Robert R. Bryan of San Francisco, who represented her for years, said the trial of the century was probably the greatest fraud in the history of this country.
1: Just for your information, you cannot be made to testify against me. That's true. If if I ever get accused of something really bad, they can't make you testify against me. And likewise, I I can't testify against you.
0: I wouldn't anyway. Probably. Unless you made me mad. Anyway, Mrs. Houtman testified that her husband called for her the night of March 1st at the Bronx Bakery where she worked. She said they went home together about half past nine, quarter to ten, and stayed there. So, she was his alibi, allegedly. Apparently,
1: they didn't believe her.
0: I mean... It, 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 it must have been all
1: that ransom money and the <laughs> yeah. ladder and the wood. Yeah,
0: uh, there's it, a lot. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, The controversy, seemingly endless, still persists because the case against Houtman was based largely on circumstantial evidence. Books have been written decrying and upholding the verdict. I mean,
1: I guess technically that's circumstantial evidence, but in my mind, and I'm not a lawyer, I don't see that as circumstantial evidence.
0: I mean, I feel like today they could go back and if they still have that evidence, now they could test for DNA. Probably because he has, I'm assuming, I mean, his son Manfred. So he has descendants that they could use to test for the DNA to see, like, was that? But I don't even think they would need to. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. Uh, one of the books, The Lindbergh Case, written in 1987 by James Fisher. Uh, he's a former FBI agent and a professor of criminal justice at Edinburgh State College in Pennsylvania, said the evidence was overwhelming.
1: If anybody listening is a lawyer, please write us and explain that. I mean, where does circumstantial evidence end? I mean, how much circumstantial evidence?
0: If you want to come on the show and give us a... a to lead. me,
1: this goes beyond circumstantial at this yeah, point.
0: I, we would love to hear from like an evidence technician or a lawyer to explain different types of evidence to us. I think that would be super interesting. Uh, nerd. Well, you know what? When do we get to the end of this show and we tell them what's going to happen next week? Very few cases are proven that well, particularly cases where you don't have a confession and where you don't even have an eyewitness. I mean, honestly, he's right. Like You, without any eyewitness testimony or confession, this is about as slam dunk as you're going to get.
1: Yeah, well, they've convicted people without a body before.
0: Right. An earlier book called Scapegoat by Anthony Scaduto which I, I love his name, a former New York Post reporter contended that, quote every piece of physical evidence introduced against the accused Lindbergh kidnapping at his trial was either manufactured by the police or distorted by the so-called expert witnesses. So, I doubt it. Again, who are you going to believe?
1: I d- Fake news, but I doubt it. That's what he's claiming. It's fake news. <sighs>
0: Appeals have been rejected through the U.S. Supreme Court several times. Houtman's widow contended through her attorney (laughs) that her husband was the victim of a conspiracy to conceal evidence. She sought monetary damages. A San Francisco court of historical review and appeals, an unofficial body that examines controversial trial, recommended the case be reopened. But New Jersey authorities said they supported the verdict and saw no reason to do that. So, um, at one, that
1: ninth court of appeals out of San Francisco. Yeah, right?
0: At one point, uh, governor the governor at the time, Brendan Byrne, ordered the ninety thousand page Lindbergh files opened. Ninety thousand pages,
1: which we have condensed down to about two hours.
0: <laughs> he said there was quote no need to preserve secrecy at this late date. Um, Byrne was a former judge and said the jury's decision was a sound one and justice was done. Now, this case prompted the United States Congress to establish kidnapping as a federal crime if the kidnapper crosses state lines with the victim. Yeah. So, so a lot of changes happened as a result of the yeah, so kidnapping Yeah, so this,
1: this is... I mean, the FBI was still in its infancy at this point, and rules and how they behave and what they're allowed to do, a lot of that came from this case. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you'd have been sitting on the jury and you would have heard that evidence... What would you think?
0: I would totally think he was guilty. And they did think he was guilty. They found him guilty. Yeah,
1: they all had to. It, Everybody it means, found him guilty. Yeah, yeah, for a death penalty, every one of them had to find him guilty. I mean, if I was sitting there, I would listen I to would this. say,
0: why are you wasting my time? Of I mean, course he wh- did it.
1: What, what's the defense law you're going to say? How can you explain
0: right. the ransom
1: money in his garage? How could you explain the wood from the ladder matching up With the wood from his attic.
0: Well, I mean, according to Anthony Scaduto, the reporter...
1: The FBI planted it. Yeah,
0: it was all manufactured. Or it was distorted by, quote-unquote, expert witnesses.
1: I think the FBI has a little bit more integrity than that. I mean, okay, so this gets into a theoretical discussion right there. Yeah. And it goes to, like, what we'll say, bad cops trying to pin something on someone who's innocent. Why... I don't understand or a lawyer trying to convict somebody or a a prosecutor trying to convict somebody with faulty evidence. Wouldn't you want, in my mind, and maybe I'm just a Boy Scout on this, wouldn't you want the actual criminal caught and punished than just trying to pin it off? Maybe they have a lot of pressure to close cases.
0: But but in my mind, justice is
1: better served. Let the innocent guy go and let's, find the actual guy who did it. Yeah,
0: so, and there's a lot of, I mean, that's a maybe lot that's just, of evidence. Maybe that's just me. And it's I've a, never
1: been a prosecutor, so I it's don't know. There's a
0: lot of evidence to plant and manipulate. You got yeah. the handwriting. You got the ladder.
1: All the you money. Got the
0: money. Yeah, yeah I mean, where, did,
1: where did, okay, so let's throw that one out. If they planted that money, it means they would have had to have found that money on the actual kidnapper, in my mind. So let's let the real guy go, and we'll plant it just to frame Hopman.
0: Yeah, there's no way. It
1: just doesn't make sense to me. There's no way. I don't know. So. Anyway. There you go. The Charles
0: Lindbergh kidnapping case. Yeah,
1: I don't want to let the cat out of the bag of what's going to happen next week.
0: Oh, it's going to be so cool. Please make sure you tune in next week. It's an interview show. I'll give you that much. Um, But I think we're all going to learn a lot. I, this... I know I always say I'm really excited for shows, but honestly, I think this might be the show that I have been most excited of, of any of our shows.
1: I think that's what keeps us going with this show because we do, I I think we're nerds. I think we, uh, I've said nerds a couple of times a show, but we get excited about doing the research and I like just learning about it. And it makes me think, like I never would have thought about Hopman here and the FBI planting evidence. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, w- I wouldn't have thought about that, and it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. So I probably won't sleep tonight thinking about this.
0: Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, so do we got anything else?
1: Stay warm.
0: Yeah, stay safe. Follow us on the socials. We're on Twitter at A Lost hour, Instagram and Facebook at anhourofyourlife, and you can write to us at Gmail. Um it's A Lost Hour at gmail.com and like I said tune in next week I'm so excited. And if it's snowy
1: and it's icy and you have to be out and drive slow down. We were, Kim and I were oh, coming yeah. back last night. We, okay, we need to replace the tires on the front of Kim's front wheel drive vehicle and uh and it got really bad and really slick so I took the Jeep down to pick her up to, to bring her home because the Jeep obviously has four wheel drive and there, there are a couple hills between where she works and home that the van would have slid.
0: Yeah, I'm very grateful that you came yeah. because. And
1: so, in one of the places I was worried about, there was a young lady who had run off the road, almost hit a telephone pole. That the rear end of the car was not even she, touching the ground.
0: Yeah, I think she was on two wheels. She was like if,
1: what 16?
0: She was. She looked like she was about 16 or 17. Yeah, there's She'd a big still lived ditch at home right with there. her parents. And she was coming home from her shift at McDonald's, yeah, and
1: like I think we were the first people there because we stopped, yeah, and got out and went over and and checked.
0: This poor girl, she was so scared, and I was worried for her because her uniform was—I mean, it's nighttime—and her uniform was all black, and so you really couldn't see her very well. Yeah,
1: I, I convinced her she'd been sitting in her car, and I convinced her that Kim was in the car, <laughs> and I would have stayed outside, but I convinced her that. If you just ran in the ditch right there, there's a good chance someone coming down that hill might hit you. wanna let's just be safe. come on over to where we are, the other side of the road, and I'd pulled off the road considerably, yeah, and wait, wait for Dad to come and Dad yeah. showed up in about five <laughs> she, minutes.
0: I did feel kind of bad for her. She's like, "My dad's gonna yell at me so much, and I but said, he didn't he did well when he got there the <laughs> first thing saw.
1: the first thing that man said was, "Baby, are said, you okay?" Yeah,
0: he thanked us for for making sure that she was safe. I mean, he, I, and I, I said, um, you know, her name was Trinity, and I said, Trinity, don't don't worry. I said, dads, understand that, you know, roads get slippery, and, and you, you know, there's not really a lot that you can do. Just be glad you didn't hit the pole, and everything, everything's fine. Her car's out of the ditch. We drove by this morning, wasn't there anymore, so.
1: And there was no damage to the car. No. Yeah. A
0: little damage, a little bit of damage to her. I'm afraid she might have some... PTSD to drive in the snow for I don't know but a little bit, but anyway, it was the
1: right thing to it do. It was, right, and hopefully
0: you? she and and all very everybody else stay safe out there and just be careful.
1: Okay, so if you want to help us out, okay, so our numbers here here we get into the geeky stuff again. I like tracking all the metrics and the numbers. I don't know if our I know. numbers are starting to build back up again. Woo,
0: thank Pre, you. Pre
1: COVID, I think it's because people are driving. They're back out on the road. Yep. But look, we're picking up, we have more followers than we've uh, ever had right now.
0: Thank you so very, very
1: much. Thank you for following us. But if you really want to help us, if you like the show, leave us a good review on Google or Apple or wherever. Leave us a good review. And the best thing you can do for us is tell a friend, say, hey, I found this really neat podcast. They talk a lot about, about a lot of different stuff, and you might actually just learn something, even if it's just trivial information it's stuff that we find interesting but share us tell us you know tell your friends about it and just uh keep listening to the show because
0: we like entertaining people
1: well while we're on lockdown we're i don't do are we still on lockdown nah not right now. we're not i mean
0: there are other places that are more metropolitan than we are that are on lockdown but we are not
1: yeah but curfew has been lifted the governor has. We've been good. The governor's lifted <laughs> our curfew to eleven o'clock <laughs> now. Yeah, but um,
0: but it's cold and nasty. Nobody wants to go. No one wants anywhere, to go so outside anyway.
1: So nothing to do tonight but listen to a podcast. There you go. So all right. Anything else, Kim? I think that's it. All right. So from our studios in Sugar Creek. Township, Ohio. <laughs>
0: Thanks for spending an hour of your life with well, us. Why don't have a, such a hard time I, with Ed. From Bellbrook, Ohio. It couldn't be the bourbon. Thank you for spending an hour of your life with us. <laughs> Sources for this and last week's show include Wikipedia, the LA Times, and of course, good old FBI.gov.